we've got uh, a guest speaker that we're really lucky to have with us today, Fahad Ali, who is a Palestinian organizer, a longtime activist with the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement, um, has organized around refugees, around queer rights. Um, so we'll hear from Fahad for 15. And then we also have uh, Arima Dal, a solidarity member, who also was a MUA delegate to a conference in Palestine uh, five years ago. So I'll pass over to Fahad, um, and then we'll uh, have discussion afterwards uh, where people can ask questions and um, to our speakers. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, I, first of all, would like to acknowledge that we are on unceded land. We're on the land of the Gadigal people. This land was stolen, and this is and always will be Aboriginal land. And in recognising that fact, recognise the dispossession of Indigenous people, not only on this continent, but all over the world, and that includes the Palestinian people. There will be no justice for the Palestinians without justice for all people who suffer under colonialism and dispossession, and that extends very much to this continent as well. With that said, I kind of want to just begin by talking to you a little bit about the recent Sydney Festival boycott campaign of which I was um, one of the organisers. And what we saw there was one of the most successful BDS actions in the Southern Hemisphere. That was initiated at a community level by artists who had recognised that the Sydney Festival had begun to put the logo of the Israeli embassy in Canberra on their promotional material. And when that came about, Essentially, artists from Western Sydney, from Arab-based um, artistic collectives, from Western Sydney-based um, artistic collectives, essentially called an open meeting, which several artists and activists attended. And from that, we, we sort of resolved that we would, we would attempt to meet with the festival to highlight our concerns, uh, which we did. And I should probably just mention that um, their, their programming came out mid-November, uh, so we only found, about, found out about it towards the latter half of November. By the time we had organised a meeting with them, it was now the middle of December, we met with them and I remember being in this room with uh, four representatives of the Sydney Festival where they disclosed to us that they had actually themselves approached the Israeli Embassy for funding but not just that, they had done it in May of 2021 when Gaza was being carpet bombed by Israel, when worshippers at Masjid al-Aqsa were being pelted with rubber bullets and drowned by tear gas and smoke bombs. And essentially the entirety of the Palestinian people rose up against that aggression only to be met with violent force by the occupying regime. And you could not have possibly claimed ignorance of that. And for the Sydney Festival to have, at that moment in time, approached the Israeli embassy to request funding is just shocking. And when we asked them to give it back, the, 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 the money which they received, $20,000, which we told them was a very clear political act and that it would be used by Israel to um, engage in its 
art washing of its crimes and normalize what it does to the Palestinian people. They told us, we can't give the money back, that would be political. <laughs> As though the act of taking money from an apartheid settler colony is not in itself political. So we organized, we told them straight up that if they didn't give the money back, we would boycott and immediately a number of things would happen. First of all, Dr. Michael Mohammed Ahmed, who is a novelist and the founding director of uh, the Sweatshop Literacy, Literacy Movement in Western Sydney, his appointment to the Board of Sydney Festival would immediately be, be withdrawn. He would no longer join the board. Arab Theatre Studio would boycott and so would Bankstown Poetry Slam, two very important organisations that had a role in the festival programming. They didn't take us particularly seriously because, of course, um, they had only really, I would, I wish Mohammed was here to, uh, to respond to this, but um, the sort of tokenization of um, these sort of like Arab artists to sit on these boards, um, and in, in their mind they probably thought, oh, I'll just find another one. Um, but I think what they really didn't think was that we would be able to mobilize as effectively as we did. And that, I think, is a real testament to the, the, the truth, the core truth that when we fight, we win. And what we did was initiate a campaign calling on all of the artists who were participating in the festival to withdraw. And at the very beginning, this was happening just before Christmas. So it was very slow moving to begin with. Immediately we got, um, we got solidarity from uh, First Nations artists, so Barker, was one of the first artists to withdraw. We had Bindi Bosses, which is um, a South Asian um, dance group. They withdrew as well. Um, so we were seeing um, First Nations um, artists, people of color, pulling out. And it wasn't until after Christmas, after New Year's, in fact, that we started seeing the first kind of, the momentum in the campaign really starting to build. And what we saw from there was all of a sudden, what started out as little bits of you know, drips and drabs had turned into this snowballing movement where by the end of it, a quarter of their program had been essentially disrupted. Um, so um, that was fantastic and it, you know, it, it got quite a lot of coverage and it really, I think, spoke to a lot of people about Palestine in a way that they hadn't particularly considered before and, and a lot of people ask well What's the point of BDS? What are you doing with BDS? How is this going to achieve anything solve anything and and really all these protests against BDS all these um, What about this? What about that? I think that is an indication that in fact BDS is really successful and BDS does have real power and that's why they're so afraid of it what we attempted to do with the campaign is we knew that we knew at a certain point that they weren't going to give the money back by the point at which their their reputation had been completely tarnished and you know right across sydney and particularly in the artistic community um sydney festivals very very embarrassed and at one point they were forced to apologize uh of course in doing that apology they wouldn't give the money back they were just we're sorry that we didn't take this into account um you know, we were able to draw real attention to the situation in Palestine, which is an apartheid situation. And it's not chiefly apartheid. It is a settler colonial regime based on the dispossession of an indigenous population. And 
one aspect of that, just one aspect of that is apartheid, but it's not the whole story. In terms of the apartheid, we had uh, roughly around the same time Amnesty International uh, releasing their report about the situation in Palestine. And um, they, they had come to the conclusion that what was being perpetrated by Israel in Palestine was apartheid. And they, they thought so for a number of reasons. The first was the territorial fragmentation of Palestinian territory. So the fact that you had essentially Bantustans and the West Bank, you had restriction of movement, Gaza being an enclave that was essentially an open-air prison, um, you had legal segregation, you had military control, you had restrictions on the right to, the right to protest. Right? You had restrictions on the right to protest and free um, sort of political participation as well. There was the dispossession of land and property. So uh, what Israel frequently does is it, it finds a piece of Palestinian land. It will say, right, uh, we are going to repossess this in the name of uh, archaeological uh, science. We need, there's, a, there's an important uh, piece of land that we need to, we need to go through. Um, and inevitably what will happen is as soon as the Palestinians are removed from that land, settlements go up and to hell with the archaeology, which was always a flimsy pretext. So um, that also includes things like the refusal of Palestinian developments. So Palestinian homes cannot be built, zoning applications, um, you know, things like development proposals, all of those are blocked for Palestinians. Um, in particular, in, um, in uh, the Negev, where you know, multiple structures are being destroyed and essentially there are villages who have been cut off from any kind of utilities, whereas you see in occupied Jerusalem, the dispossession of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, really speaks to this idea that Israel wants to remove Palestinians and displace them from their lands. There's also the very, very clearly criminal aspect of this, which is the, the way in which the Palestinians are treated that amount to very clearly crimes against humanity. And we're talking about forcible transfer. We're talking about administrative detention, imprisonment without trial or um, you know, charge, the arrest of minors, sexual torture of women in Israeli prisons, abuse of minors in Israeli prisons. So all of these things fit into this picture of Israeli apartheid. But of course, as I said, that's not the only, only um, facet of the situation in Palestine. We also have the, the brutal military regime which rains down white phosphorus cluster munitions upon the people of Gaza in a deliberate attempt not to, as they would say, stop terrorism, but in an attempt to break the Palestinian spirit and to remove Palestinians from the land to establish a ethnically homogenous regime in which one group of people is prioritized over another. And that is a story we've seen before. It's a story that is replicated in many places around the world. It's a story of settler colonialism. It's a story of imperialism. It's a story that our, it, we, we in this room should all be aware of happening right now in this colony in Australia with the dispossession of Aboriginal people. So um, I will leave it at that, and pot potentially we can talk about that at the end with some questions. Thank you.
I'll now pass over to Irma. Thank you so much, Fahad. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Fahad, for coming and for your role in organising that boycott of the Sydney Festival. I think it, it, it was, you know, a breakthrough. It pushed, you know, onto the national news and it really showed that, you know, we can break through the propaganda of, you know, that Israel is some kind of progressive state, one that actually just a few decades ago people would call a socialist state, travel there for a holiday, stay on a kibbutz or go and celebrate Mardi Gras in what was supposedly, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East. And yet it's a democracy that is based explicitly on the exclusion, you know, of a whole of a whole peoples, um, the Palestinian people. And you know, on that note, I'd also like to acknowledge that you know we're meeting and speaking today on Aboriginal land, the land of the of the Gadigal people. Um, the the title of the talk today, Revolution in the Middle East: Why is Palestine still the issue? Well. You know, I think what, what the campaign showed is that in some ways it's becoming more of an issue. And actually the report that Fahad mentioned, Amnesty International also, there was a big report by Human Rights Watch just in the last year, openly acknowledging the, the apartheid uh, system that's in play is a, is a massive break, you know, with, with where the debates got to, to this point. And I think um, whilst, you know, I think you raised a really good point, Fahad, that apartheid doesn't tell the whole story, I think what is significant about that is it acknowledges that actually Israel has control over the West Bank and Gaza and it executes that control in, you know, an apartheid fashion and that really puts a, um, you know, puts the reality of the possibility of a, a two-state solution where somehow you can have these separated enclaves um, form a new, a new foundation of the state of Palestine. It really kind of undermines uh, that myth in a way that I think is, is, is important for the, for the left because Israel has never uh, pursued a two-state solution. I think they've pursued what, what we should call um, a no-state solution. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the previous um, now deposed Israeli Prime Minister, actually made that clearer than anyone where he explicitly said, you know, we want to... Um, uh, extend Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank and talked openly about Israel being um, a state only for its Jewish citizens and you know actively encouraged Jewish settlers to you know go out into the into the West Bank and set up as many settlements as possible and I think the you know the bizarre thing about Israel is it's a 19th century colonial project that wasn't started until the 20th century and still hasn't been completed you know in the 20 in the 21st century. And so whilst there absolutely are parallels all around the world, it's also a unique situation in that that process of, of colonialism hasn't, they, Vic, Israel hasn't been victorious yet. That struggle is still playing out. And the Palestinians will not stop resisting. They do not let the issue go away. And you know, this time last year, um, as Fahad said, you know, more strikes on Gaza. Pal Palestinians uh, held a general strike across all the, the territories, and that was a real step forward as well in terms of, of, of the unity of a people that have been, you know, fragmented, um, you know, separated from each other and, you know, by checkpoints and controls. And I think if bravery were enough, Palestine would have freed itself a hundred times over. And what I want to argue um, in the time I have is that the fate of Palestine is actually tied to the, the Arab people and to a revolutionary strategy. But I also want to talk about why the issue of Palestine comes up again and again and again from a, from a, a Marxist perspective, I think, a, a sort of a materialist perspective, is that it's 
It lies at the crossroads of global politics, economics and power. It is a conflict that is absolutely central to the geopolitics of capitalism. I think granting rights uh, for a state to Palestine is an existential threat to Israel, and a threat to Israel is a threat to Western imperialism. Because right from the very beginning, Israel has always sought sponsors by big Western powers. First, the British in 1917, which declared uh, the land of, of Palestine as um, a homeland for Jewish, for Jewish people, and then later um, they turned to the US. When you sort of saw the decline of British power, they turned to the US, which backed the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 under the myth, a land without people for a people without land, um, which you know has echoes of terra nullius here. But to establish that state on a so-called land without people involved a bloody war, which pushed uh, refugees out into neighbouring countries and into the enclaves of, of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But why did Britain and, um, and the US back and aid Israel? And why does the US still aid Israel to the tunes of billions of dollars uh, every year? I think it's because Israel offered them something in return. And that was to be an outpost of the West in the Middle East in one of the most strategic regions of the world that had been fought over and carved up for centuries already. And then, you know, where oil was discovered under the sands of Persia, now Iran, that oil fueled World War I. And they suspected correctly that there was a hell of a lot more oil to be found. Um, it also is an absolutely strategic area um, in connecting, you know, transport and trade routes of major continents of the world. And the Israeli newspaper Haaretz actually identified the role, um, this special role that Israel could play in its paper in 1951 when it said, Israel is to become the watchdog. And if for any reason the Western powers should sometimes prefer to close their eyes, Israel could be relied upon to punish one or more neighbouring states. And this is exactly what they did. So in 56, just... Um, Eight years after their establishment, Israel joined Britain and France in waging war on Egypt after Nasser nationalised the Suez Canal, an incredibly strategic uh, trade, trade route in the world and one in which you know, a lot of oil was flowing through. Then the next decade, in 67, Israel took on five neighbouring Arab states despite being heavily outnumbered and outgunned and they won in six days you know, against all predictions and all odds, and they absolutely cemented themselves as the powerhouse um, and the reliable ally of the region. And I think if you look at the US's strategy in the Middle East, it, hasn't, it isn't just uh, relying on Israel. It's always relied on dictatorial Arab regimes as well. You can see now uh, the alliance with Saudi Arabia, um, uh, the, the support for the counter-revolutionary El-Sisi government. You know, we don't um, you know, hear about Saudi's bombing of Yemen in the way that we hear about Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. But these allies have never been as reliable as Israel. Um, a good example is Iran. Iran actually for a long time was a major strategic ally of the US until the Shah was overthrown by a people's uprising. Now it's a hostile, you know, power. And the wave of independence movements in the 50s 
kind of shored up this feeling of, of, of the US that there wasn't a reliable Arab um, you know, regime uh, because you, know, you saw uprisings, you saw independence movements, and then they had you know, Nasser in Egypt who, as I mentioned, nationalized the Suez Canal, or um, Mossadegh in Iraq who nationalized the oil. So Israel is the one you know, consistent factor with, within that. Um, it's the reliable and the powerful ally. I think you can see it as, you know, it's the US's queen um, on the chessboard of the Middle East, as they would see it. And actually, Israel's been part of that strategy of neutralizing the other Arab states. So under the Trump administration, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed the Abraham Accords, um, which essentially declares peace, you know, with Israel. And um, US President Joe Biden supports and says he will build on the Abraham Accords. And you know, Egypt signed a peace deal with, with Israel um, a long ago. And I think since, since Obama, uh, US governments, successive US governments have actually wanted to reorient US power more to Asia and to you know, containing China, as they put it. Um, but you saw with the recent withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, that, you know, whether and the Taliban coming back into power, 20 years of US boots on the ground in Afghanistan could not establish a reliable ally for them there. So actually they they still need, you know, their lackey on the ground. And that's not to say that Israel, you know, simply follows kind of what the US want. Actually there's tensions, there's points of, of difference, there's a debate happening at the moment over some, you know, ex extreme sort of US uh, Israeli technology that can tap tap phones um, even that are encrypted that the US has banned from its own country like there's you know there's there's little tensions and there's little differences but that alliance you know is is strong and in Australia we have you know um, sort of unbroken bipartisan support um, for Israel as well so I think you begin to see how freeing Palestine actually means dismantling a whole architecture of imperialism in the region. It's no coincidence that the US backs Israel and it also backed the Mubarak government in Egypt that was overthrown when millions rose up in the Arab Spring in 2011. Uh, people would have you know, seen images on the, on the television you know, over 10 years ago now from Libya to Tunisia, from Bahrain to Iraq, from Lebanon to Syria. City squares were occupied, masses of ordinary people rose up, demanded democratic freedoms, freedom from police repression and, and torture, police states, and an end to the impoverishment of the free market. There was you know, an incredible flourishing of art, debate, of solidarity, uh, fear evaporated, sectarian divisions were broken down. And you know, one just little story I remember of in Tahrir Square was of you know, when um, it was mu Muslims needed to pray, the Coptic Christians would surround them to protect them from the police while, while they did that, that you know, incredible kind of flourishing of solidarity and power. So it showed the possibilities of an Arab-wide liberation movement. And actually within that, demands for the freedom of Palestine rose very quickly and very organically. Um, because I think that, you know, that issue has always been central um, you know, for all Arab people, partly because there are Palestinians in so many surrounding countries that, you know, um, have you know, been incorporated into those surrounding Arab regions now and partly you know, because you know, people can see the connection between you know, their oppression and their resistance and that of the Palestinian people. And you know, I experienced a little bit of that myself at um, the Arab World Trade 
um, trade unions conference in Tunisia where, you know, there was one chant that was going to unite all the delegates in the room. It was always free, free Palestine. You know, every, every delegate would stand up and, and, and join in. And I think especially so in the Egyptian revolution, which shares a border with Palestine, you saw um, demands arising for opening the Rafah crossing um, and convoys were able to cross again. In September of 2011, thousands stormed the Israeli embassy. They forced the Israeli ambassador out of Cairo and the pipeline that supplies Israel with gas from Egypt was repeatedly bombed in saboteur attacks during the revolution and in 2012 they actually um, cancelled for a time the, the gas deal between Egypt cancelled its, its gas deal with Israel. And the Egyptian revolutionary Hassam el-Hamalawi um, says that actually the, the very first time that he ever heard people confident enough to raise chants against the Mubarak regime in Egypt was on solidarity demonstrations with the second Palestine Intifada where people chanted Hosni Mubarak is just like Ariel Sharon. And the solidarity flowed both ways. So Palestine also held demonstrations where they chanted for Egypt. And we've seen you know, echoes of this again in Algeria and Sudan and their uprisings and revolutions in 2019. Palestinian flags all through the crowds. Um, Sudanese people um, burning Israeli flags um, in protest of their government wanting to sign on to the Abraham Accords as well. And I think this vision, this vision you know, that, that solidarity has of um, you know, a revolutionary strategy that incorporates the whole region, it stands in stark contrast to the kind of conventional solutions that have, that have been put forward you know, for, for years to the, to the conflict, and namely the two-state solution uh, pushed by you know, the US, for example, but which the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the kind of key leadership of the Palestine resistance for so long um, bought into as well when they entered the peace process uh, in the 90s that resulted in signing the Oslo Accords which for the first time saw the PLO actually officially recognize the state of Israel, its right to exist and you know everything that went along with that, um, setting up a Palestinian authority which uh, now plays the role that many Palestinians see as essentially an extension of the Israeli occupation policing its own people, handing, even, handing prisoners you know, back over to, to Israel. They are widely disliked, distrusted, um, and I think the election of Hamas in 2006 was an expression of that. But actually, and perhaps this is something we can cover more in the discussion, I think Hamas's vision and tactics are not so different from the PLOs in its early days, where it too used... Um, you know, uh, guerrilla fighter tactics um, against, against Israel, but that didn't work. Um, and so it moved more to an accommodation strategy, but it always had a vision of, you know, setting up a, a Palestinian state of its own while not interfering with the other Arab regimes or what was going on there. And what that meant in practice was cutting itself off from other resistance movements and at worst actually sometimes leaving Palestinian refugees in those other Arab countries to their, to their fate. Um, I think the call for boycott, divestment and sanctions in 2005 from Palestinian organisations actually arose out of a similar context, looking for an alternative strategy and an alternative vision. And it's something we you know, should absolutely rally behind. You know, it was a massive part of the campaign against apartheid South Africa, for example, was this, the boycotts 
uh, the strikes. And when we talk about boycotts, you know, I think we need to raise our vision beyond like not buying Israeli hummus in the in the supermarket. Like we want to see strikes, you know, on on Israeli ships. There's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of Israeli ships in the port where I work. You know, that's the kind of the boycotts we need. But I don't think we should see this as the peaceful alternative to a revolutionary strategy. I think we should see it as a way that we can show our unconditional sol solidarity with the Palestinian people and break down that propaganda, build the movement that will hopefully ultimately give strength to, you know, and confidence for another um, revolutionary wave. Because, of course, the Arab Spring, you know, very sadly failed this time around. But I do think it gave a glimpse of the power, the strategy and the forces that could ultimately free Palestine. The Palestinians on their own cannot defeat Israel militarily. They are, you know, armed to the absolute teeth and they have the US right in there behind them. But the power of not just the Arab masses, but in particular the, Ar the Arab working class, you know, absolutely does have the power to shake the region and shake the foundations of imperialism. And in the Egyptian revolution, it wasn't just the occupation of Tahrir Square that, um, that toppled the regime. It was the fact that in, in the last few days of that, they were joined by an incredible strike wave of the Egyptian working class. And that was, you know, the, the, the screw that, um, that Mubarak, you know, could, could no longer um, resist and, and remain in power. So I think, you know, that's the hope, but we absolutely have, you know, an important role to play here. And I think we should take hope and inspiration from what happened with the Sydney boycott. Right now, as we speak, there have been more raids on the Al-Aqsa Mosque by Israeli, Israeli soldiers, and there is talk of, you know, the threat of another war in Gaza. So thank you for coming to the talk, and free, free Palestine. Thank you.